Lord, you are the God of righteous command and unmeasured compassion. You have the right as the creator to demand that your created people obey your word. And Lord, you have shown your glory by compassionately, without measure, loved your people, even though they have disobeyed your word. You showed your great authority in your Son, and you showed your great compassion also in your Son. I pray that, Lord, today we would see the right balance, the proper measure of both the authority of Jesus and the compassion of Jesus. May we be those, Lord, who honor his word, but who bow looking to mercy from the Son when we break it. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Good authority is a very good thing, even though it may not be in vogue today. King David, who once had the place of high authority over all of the people of Israel, he wrote some illustrative words about authority's value in a passage known as the last words of David. It's found in 2 Samuel chapter 23, verses 3 and 4. Listen to what David wrote. When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. So King David tells us at the end of his life that when a just and good king exercises his authority, he actually brings blessing to those who are under his reign. The author Jonathan Lehman, he gives a vivid description of what David's words communicate in that passage. He writes, You see a sherbet morning sky. The sun rises, changing it to blue. Its light warms the earth, giving life and vitality to everything and everyone scurrying about. Then the rain comes. Each droplet trickles into the dirt, soaking roots and strengthening leaf and blade so that moist grass glows green under the returning sun. This is what good authority does. Good authority strengthens and grows. He goes on to write that one of history's greatest secrets, hidden by the blindfold that Satan and sin places over our eyes, is that God means his authority to grow and expand us not to shrink and snuff us out, end quote. So once again, good authority, and especially God's good authority, is a very good thing. But this morning, we see the good authority of King Jesus challenged by those who were blinded by their own pride and by their own desire for self-autonomy by men who embraced the confines of their own self-promoting system 
but who refused the authority of their promised Messiah. And as we consider this text here in Matthew's Gospel, we must ask ourselves a very important question. How do we respond to Christ's authority over us? And there are two truths I want to bring out from this text. Number one, the authority of Christ demands honor. And number two, the dishonoring of Christ's authority demands repentance. Truth number one, the authority of Christ demands honor. Let us read those words again. Verse 23, And when he, Jesus, entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I will also ask you one question, and if you tell me the answer, then I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So Jesus is asked in an accusing question, isn't he, in verse 23. If you recall, Jesus had spent the night in the town of Bethany, just to the east of Jerusalem. And upon his return to the city of Jerusalem, on what was perhaps the Tuesday of the final week of his life before his crucifixion, he entered back into the temple and he resumed his teaching of the people. But the chief priests and the elders of the people, they approached Jesus right there in the temple while he was teaching. Now, the chief priests were members of the Jewish Sanhedrin, which was the ruling religious council in that day. And they belonged to the respected high priestly families of Israel. This group included both the current and the former high priests, along with all of the adult males of all of the prominent priestly families in the land. So these were some pretty important guys, both religiously and politically speaking. And they came with the elders of the people, who were likely a body of senior men who had varying influence dependent upon a man's own personal quality, as well as that individual's social group to which he belonged. So these guys also had a pretty high status among the people of Israel. In fact, these men, this collective of chief priests and, and elders here, it made up the political leadership of Israel in the first century. If there was a question about how the nation was going to react or respond to something, it was this group, this Sanhedrin, that made that decision. And they asked Jesus a question that seems an awful lot like an attempt to trip him up, doesn't it? To find something that they could use against him. They asked him, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? They are essentially asking him, I think, who gave you the right to do these things? And who gave you the right to receive this kind of praise, Jesus? And with this question, I think there must have been somewhat of a how-dare-you tone to their words. Well, in verse 23, they refer to these things, if you notice. These things that Jesus was doing. Probably, they were referring to Jesus' teaching of the people without their expressed permission. Along with the correction of the temple abuses, if you recall, back in verses 12 and 13. 
along with the healing of the blind and the lame up in verse 14. But I think this also had to include the fact that Jesus had just recently entered into town to the loud acclaim of the people of Israel who welcomed him with the meaning-packed, theologically-packed words, Hosanna to the Son of David. This Jesus, the one whom everyone in the land was talking about, this Jesus had been upsetting their system upon his entrance into Jerusalem. You see, these guys had a nice little world going on, a nice little world of self-promotion there in their city, and they did not want it to be upset. And so they looked upon Jesus not as the answer to all of their hopes, not as the fulfillment of all of the promises that God had given to them, but actually as a threat, a very real threat to their way of life. Well, Jesus responded to them with divine savvy. It's hard not to smile a little bit at the way that Jesus responds to them in verses 24 and 25. He knew, he knew what was motivating these men. He knew of their self-interest, and he knew of their lack of any true Godward love. In fact, in chapter 23, as we're going to see down the road, Jesus will likely call some of these uh, same men who came to him on this day, he'll call these guys whitewashed tombs, pointing out that their hypocrisy, which must have looked beautiful on the outside to the people, to the exterior, but on the inside it was full of nothing but rotting bones. He knew that these guys were charlatans who gave God lip service before the people, but did not in faith long for the Messiah's arrival. They did not have faith and expectation and hope in God's promised deliverer. No, they were very content in the system that they had around them. And so, Jesus responded to them with utter brilliance. He responded with a question that they would never publicly answer. He says, the baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? Now, John's baptism, was that a God thing, Jesus is asking? Was that, John's baptism, was that from heaven? Was that from the Lord of heaven? Was that something that God actually honored? Was John acting in righteousness when he did the things that he did and preached the things that he preached? Or was that merely a man thing? Was that merely the preaching of a crazy guy who sought to get an audience for himself out in the wilderness? Is that all that it was, or was it truly from the Lord above? Now, Jesus, of course, is referring to the ministry of John the Baptist, the one who came in fulfillment of the prophecy to prepare the people for the arrival of their Messiah. John, if you recall, he urged the people of Israel to repent and be baptized with that baptism, that washing of water signifying that their hearts had been humbled before God and were ready to be delivered by the one whom he would send. But John, if you recall, also chastised the religious leaders of his day because he also knew of their hypocrisy. I want us to be reminded of John's message because it's so pivotal to our passage here. If you would turn back with me to chapter 3 of Matthew, let's go back quite a few weeks to this passage that we encountered many weeks ago. John chapter 3. And I'm going to read verses 1 through 12 and just listen to John's message and listen to John's rebuke. John 
Matthew 3, verse 1, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children from Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. When you think John the Baptist, my friends, you need to think the word arrow. Arrow. John's whole existence had one purpose, to be an arrow who pointed towards the Messiah who would come. Everything that he did, everything that he taught, all of his baptizing work, all of it was meant to prepare the people and point the people to Jesus who was to come. John was all about Jesus, and if you don't accept the message of John, then you are not accepting the message of Jesus. John came to prepare the people, to help them to repent, that they might be ready for God's blessing of his son. And John was willing to say to the religious leaders of his day, You vipers! You snakes, who warned you? He could tell their hearts. He knew of their hypocrisy. And John boldly proclaimed that they would need to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. John, this fiery preacher out in the wilderness, had one purpose, and it was to point everyone around him to the Savior, Jesus Christ. And so, back in chapter 21 of Matthew... Jesus posed a question there that the religious leaders would never answer because Jesus already knew the true answer of their hearts. They did not accept John's baptism as having come from God. And therefore, they did not accept his message that the Messiah was about to arrive. And since they would not accept John's message as from God and therefore a authoritative from God, then they would never accept the true answer about Jesus, the question they asked of Jesus there in the temple that day. Their question to Jesus was, by what authority are you doing these things? And who, Jesus, gave you this authority? And my friends, the correct answer is this. My authority comes from the same authoritative God who sent John the one whom you rejected. That's the answer to the question the Pharisees posed. Who gave you the right, Jesus? Who gave you the authority? The same God who gave the authority to John the Baptist whom you rejected. That's who. 
And so the religious leaders, fearing the people, refused to reveal their true position. In verse 25, towards the end, it says, uh, They discussed it among themselves. If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we're afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. The people held John up to be a man of God. The people held John the Baptist up as a prophet of God. They actually believed that John was preparing the way for the Messiah, even though I think we know it seems that they had a flawed understanding of the nature and ministry of this Messiah whom they hoped for. And so these chief priests and these elders, these members of the Jewish Sanhedrin, the ruling council in Israel, they, like every other self-interested politician who values his position over speaking truth, refused to answer the king of Israel. In fact, they uttered what was not true. Notice carefully, they say, we do not know, in verse 27. Oh, they knew. Oh, they knew what they thought about John. They did not accept him as from God, and they did not value his message and his ministry. But out of fear for the people, they instead declared, we do not know. They refused to reveal their true minds because these men were but hypocrites. They look one way on the outside, but on the inside, they're altogether different. Therefore, Jesus denied them an answer to their question in verse 27. He said, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And I love Christ's response. He doesn't say, well, then I don't know. He doesn't lie like they did. Jesus refused to accept their declaration of ignorance, but declared their non-answer as actually being a matter of choice. They chose not to answer, which is why Jesus says, neither will I tell you. You won't tell me. You've made the choice. I won't tell you. In other words, since you choose not to answer my question, I'm choosing not to answer your question. Unless you think that maybe Jesus is being disrespectful to authority, please understand you've got it backwards. It is they who are being disrespectful to authority. The authority of Christ demands honor. But rather than receiving honor by learned leaders who should have known better, Jesus was dishonored by their unbelief and their rejection. Men who had the outward appearance of honoring God's authority actually rejected his authority in their hearts, resulting in their denial of Jesus. Riverside, the authority of Christ demands our honor too. Let us ask some hard questions about our own hearts because we're all in danger of being at least a little bit of a Pharisee. Let us ask some hard questions about our own hearts, our own inner lives, which God alone sees clearly. Young people, young people, let me ask you, do you only honor Christ's authority over you because it satisfies your parents, or it fools your pastors, or it pleases the expectations of other people? When I was a young teen, I was a Christian, but I was also just a little bit of a Pharisee. I was a Christian, 
But I was also a little Pharisee. Because though I looked pretty good on the outside, my parents thought, good kid. Teachers thought, good kid. Most people thought, good kid. But you want to know the truth? Inside, all kinds of idolatries and corruptions going on. And a lot of stuff that for years I was not willing to repent of before God. Yeah, one who embraced Jesus as Savior, but I got to tell you, there was a nice streak of Pharisaism going on inside of my life. And I wonder if that's the case with some of you folks, especially some of the young people today, where you're under the temptation to simply follow what's being told that you must follow, but in reality, you've never truly embraced the Savior, Jesus Christ. Not only have you not accepted him truly as your savior, but you've never actually accepted him as your Lord and master over your existence. My friends, that is no different than the chief priests and the elders. Professing believer, oh my friends, do you give lip service to Christ's authority when the church gathers, but then set aside his authority when the church scatters? Do you exit worship and then return to a life of unfettered gossip? Do you exit worship and then return to a life of vast consumption of worldly entertainments that only take your mind down but don't fill you up with the joys of Christ? Do you exit worship and then return to a life of angry and bitter spirit towards other people? Or to the pornography that you think that no one else knows about or to your deceptive business practices, or to your prideful self-promotion before other people, or to anything else that is contrary to the will of God? Do you leave the worship of God where you have to clean yourself up and look a certain way, at least you think in your own mind, and then go out of this place and return to the same heathen existence that you've always lived? My friends, there's a nice streak of Pharisaism in us. And Christians are the ones who recognize this, own it, repent over it, ask for help with it, do battle with it. Non-Christians are those who are fine living in that kind of a system. Christian, are there quiet, tucked away areas of sin in your life which you are hesitant to address, which you are keeping in the dark, which are robbing you of full, joyful fellowship with God? Understand, this is not obedience to his authority. Obedience says, Lord, I've wronged you again, and my only hope is Christ. Would you help me with Christ as you people come around me to battle with my sin, Lord? My friends, Jesus bears all the authority of the Creator God, and He deserves and He demands nothing less than your full allegiance, your unmeasured honor, and your complete obedience. And my friends, understand, please, his authority is actually sweet and good. His commands are not unrighteous and unsavory, but righteous and oh-so-tasty to the life that decides to, to heed them, to follow them. As David said, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. 
when a Christian follows God's authority, that Christian enjoys the growth and the prosperity of God working in that individual's inner life to the point that our joy is strong, our peace is real, our resiliency and our patience are there to bear up under this world, for we have a king who's so good who leads us. So we must honor Christ's authority, even though these leaders so poorly did not. Truth number two, the dishonoring of Christ's authority demands repentance. And this is really what I need to hear, because I already know that I have dishonored his authority. I already know the areas where I've not been honoring him. But now I need to hear this that the dishonoring of Christ's authority demands repentance, and that truth is actually one that is saturated with grace, saturated with God's kindness and compassion. Verse 28. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. So Jesus posed a pointed parable in verses 28 through 31. Still addressing these same religious leaders, Jesus illustratively went right at their hearts. And again, he used the location of a vineyard in verse 28 to do this. Now, I don't want to belabor this, but I do want to make sure it's clear that as we have seen, whenever Jesus uses the word vineyard in the Gospels, we have to stop and we have to remember the Old Testament context that may be somewhat foreign to us, but which his listeners would have clearly understood when he employed that word vineyard. Because as we saw last week, the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, he used the vineyard motif to declare God's true thinking about his rebellious people. Listen again, Isaiah 5, the first seven verses, I'm just going to read them for you. Listen to what God says about his people. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines he built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. 
I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. So God uses the vineyard as a picture of his people. He's planted them. He's blessed them. He's given them everything that they need. Good authority, a good law. And what have they done? Not justice, but bloodshed. Not righteousness, but the people are crying out in agony over the way his people are acting. They had not been fruitful. God's vineyard, God's people, were not fruitful for their God. So now, in Matthew 21, Jesus again employs this vineyard to communicate to the religious rulers that they too had been unfruitful before God. Just like those fathers of theirs who hundreds of years before had been unfaithful and had been unfruitful, so Jesus is making the same indictment upon the chief priests and the rulers of Israel. He says a man had two sons, and he asked them both to go and work in his vineyard. The first son said, I will not. But notice, afterward, he changed his mind. So though he refused at first, he later repented of his refusal, and he went and actually obeyed. The second son answered, I go, sir. But he did not go. So though he declared his obedience before his father, he was not obedient. And at this, Jesus asked the chief priests and the elders of Israel, which of the two did the will of his father? Which son, in other words, ultimately honored his father's authority? The son who said no, but repented and ended up obeying, or the son who said yes, but did not obey? And these men rightly answered the obvious answer to Jesus, the first son. Now, the details of this parable, my friends, are not what's important. We have to be careful not to get bogged down in parabolic details. What's important is that Jesus was revealing what he knew about these men. And Jesus was declaring what God declares about these men. So Jesus then applies his pointed parable in verses 31 and 32. And boy, did his point have some bite to it. He says, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom before you. Those dirty people, those unwelcomed people, those unreligious people, those cast-off people, they go into the kingdom before you, Jesus says. Tax collectors, as we have learned several times over, they were the Jews who actually worked for the hated Roman Empire, the ones who were oppressing the Jews, and they worked for them by actually collecting their heavy taxes that they put upon Jewish households. What's more, these men, these tax collectors, were also known, they also had quite the reputation of skimming a little bit off the top for themselves, of taking a little bit more for their own personal well-being. And so these guys, they were utterly despised by the people, as you can imagine. 
And then the prostitutes. I don't have to give a lot of explanation there, do I? They, too, were held in the lowest esteem in the land. So here Jesus gives the men who were looked upon as the lowest, and then here he gives the women who were looked upon as the lowest, and he says, these people who are held in the lowest esteem in the land, they're going to enter into the kingdom before you. Can you imagine the jaws of the chief priests and the elders dropping? Jesus says that the men and the women who were most rejected, most unloved, and most sinful, according to the people's gaze at least, would actually enter the kingdom before the chief priests and the elders of Israel. And when Jesus says, before you, in verse 31, it's likely a rhetorical way of saying to them, they're going to enter in, but you're not. Because, not only does the grammar allow this, but Matthew 5.20, Jesus says, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless you have a righteousness that's altogether better than the feeble righteousness of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and all of these religious people who don't get it that Jesus is the Messiah, unless your righteousness exceeds them, you're never even going to enter the kingdom, Jesus said. He also says in Matthew 18, 3, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus' whole point here is that these men did not turn. They did not change their minds. They did not repent. They will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So the people most cast off would enter, but the people most accepted would be cast off. And the distinction between these two groups all comes down to verse 32. Read it with me again. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Guys, John's whole purpose, his whole existence, was to be an arrow pointing people to Jesus. And if they won't accept John, if they won't believe in John's message, then they refuse to accept the one that he's pointing to. These chief priests, these elders, they refuse John's message. But over here you got people like Zacchaeus and Matthew, and other tax collectors. And over here you got prostitutes, harlots, whores, the most vile women of the land. They see Jesus. They see the one whom John had pointed them to. And they say, that is my only hope. I found someone who, yeah, he hates my sin, He doesn't accept my sin, but he still welcomes me to come to him. And what's more, these prostitutes and these tax collectors are going to find out just what price Jesus is willing to pay for tax collectors and prostitutes to come to him. That he's going to shed his blood for men who have cheated people out of their livelihood. He's going to shed his blood for men who have worked for the enemy and robbed the people of Israel. He's going to shed his blood for women who have given up their bodies for the pleasure of men. Losing all respect, being willing to be abused and forsaken by the men of Israel. He's going to go and shed his blood for the least of these. Oh, though they were cast off, these would be accepted and welcomed through Jesus. And so they believed John's message. They changed their minds, and they obeyed. 
At first they did not obey. They went the way of this world, pleasing themselves. But then, upon seeing John's message and seeing Jesus who came, they changed their minds, and they would enter in. O sinner, you have wronged your God. You have said, I will not. But if you look to Jesus and change your mind and believe upon the one to whom John pointed, oh, my friend, you will enter into the kingdom. My friends, repentant faith is the key to kingdom entrance. Carefully notice the words of Jesus. In verse 29, he says, the first son changed his mind. In verse 32, he said the tax collectors and the prostitutes, they believed. The tax collectors and the prostitutes, hopeless, vile sinners who came to Jesus with nothing in their hands, they accepted John's message about the Messiah with repentance, and they looked to Jesus, the one to whom he pointed, with faith. They had repentant faith, and that's what welcomes them into the kingdom. Not by any works of righteousness which they have done, but according to his mercy, God has saved them. And they've looked upon him and said, we receive your mercy. We need it. Thank you, Lord. But the religious leaders, even though they saw such people turning to God, the very thing the Old Testament prophets said would happen, even though they saw such people as these turning to God, these religious leaders, they rejected John, and therefore they rejected the Messiah to whom John himself pointed. The dishonoring of Christ's authority demands repentance. And we must, my friends, first recognize that our lost condition before God, before we can understand our need to turn to Him for salvation. We must first recognize our lost condition before we can turn in repentance to the God of salvation. We must understand, friends, that we, all of us, are broken people, sinful people, who are due the wrath of God. And then upon that recognition, we must understand that God has provided us a way to be forgiven and to have the blessing of His kingdom. My friends, do you acknowledge that you have undermined God's authority over you? Do you recognize that your life, your life, my life too, but your life, do you recognize that your life has been marked by the treasonous words, I will not, when commanded by your God? Your life is marked by the words, no, when God commands you to do something. Your life is marked by a refusal, a rebellion towards the God who made you. And my friends, do you see that this refusal of his good, righteous authority over you has indeed rightfully endangered you before him? That you are under the wrath of God, that you do deserve his judgment. Tax collectors deserve to be judged. Prostitutes deserve to be judged. Pastors deserve to be judged. Moms, dads, kids, adults, we deserve the judgment of God for all of us have said no when he's commanded us to obey. Do you acknowledge that you have undermined God's authority? Or friend, do you think that just because you simulate a righteous life before other people, 
that God will then somehow consider you as being truly obedient before him. Do you presume that simply because you have vocalized the words, I go, sir, that it means that you have actually honored the Lord? My dear friends, please recognize that at heart, you are marked by the same greed and the same self-love as the tax collectors and the prostitutes. And, un- and friend, please, please understand, you too must change your mind about who you are before a holy God. There are those who know they are sinners and they won't return to God because they love their sin. And then there are those who refuse to admit they're sinners and they won't turn to God because of their pride. There are two types of people in this world and everyone's on the spectrum somewhere in between that. And all of us, all of us are held to account by this holy God. My friends, there are no untainted people. Only soiled sinners and prideful Pharisees. And only repentant believers in Jesus will know forgiveness and will experience entrance into his kingdom. So my dear friends, please change your mind about yourself and direct your heart to the Savior. And know this, that Jesus is facing this type of challenge to his authority on the very last week before he would go to the cross, the King of Ages, the Lord above. He would go to the cross, he would willingly be nailed to wood, he would suffocate and bleed to death in payment for your sins and mine. He would suffocate and bleed to death to pay for the sins of tax collectors, prostitutes, and people who have a nice streak of Phariseeism. He will go to the cross to pay for sinners like you and me. And so, yes, his authority is true and good. Yes, we have all of us broken his authority. But Jesus, the authoritative one, has paid the price for all of the rebels of his kingdom. And if we will repent of our sin and believe in him, our sins will be washed away. And tax collectors, we will be no more. Prostitutes, we will be no more. Pharisees, we will be no more. For we will be the humble people, the citizens of his kingdom of heaven. Jesus is the authoritative king. Do you bow before him? Jesus is the authoritative king. Do you repent before him? Because Jesus is also the gracious Savior. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, we're so thankful for law and grace, for command and compassion. We're so thankful, Father, that we have righteous rules. The Lord, you've given us a good path to follow through the enablement of your Spirit, through a heart that's been changed. But we're also so grateful, Father, that you've given us a Savior who is willing to shed his blood for us, that, Lord, we might be made right with you, and we might begin to walk anew in the strength of your Spirit, Lord, no longer being the old selves that we once were, but people who are growing more and more every day into the image of your blessed Son. Help us to bow before King Jesus' authority. Help us to repent whenever we reject it, I pray, Lord. And help us to be quick to run to the mercy that's provided at his cross. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.